parts or its pieces uh, as we make some comments on them in this morning's message. Psalm 31. This psalm rehearses several themes, a number of themes, that have appeared repeatedly in the first 30 psalms that uh, I've had the privilege of journeying through over the past year and several months. And I speak, for instance, of these repeated themes like the psalmist expressing deep distress, like in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The psalmist repeatedly Uh, mentions the ubiquitous presence of his enemies that seem to always be there lying in the background. We see numerous descriptions of David's nightmarish state of mind throughout the Psalms in these early chapters of the Psalter. But contrast with that, we also find repeated emphases on the Lord's steadfast love through it all and his responsive faith despite the fact that he seems to almost constantly face the trials of life. Lest we are tempted in reading the Psalms to see these recurrent themes as some tiresome repetition, as though we were reading Leviticus, or and and that needn't be tiresome repetition either. So we, you know, forgive me for that. But that's when people read through the Bible in a year, they usually lose it at at, uh, at Leviticus, <laughs> um, and perhaps not without good reason. It takes a little work to kind of find your way through it. The Psalms have a similar kind of repetition. Let us never think of them as tiresome or uh, uh, too much emphasis on things that we've already heard about. We note that Psalm 31 does repeat a number of themes that we have found in previous Psalms, but unlike many Psalms, it is one of the most devotionally powerful wonderfully encouraging and delightfully faith-filled psalms that we have come to thus far in book one of the Psalter. Its contents are general. And that's good news because it allows us, the modern reader, the modern prayer, to insert ourselves into the psalm and say, this could be talking about me. And thus, that they are general is very helpful to the succeeding generations. The truth in this psalm, as well as others, is timeless. Its value for the suffering saint is incalculable. Its revelation of the glory of our Redeemer 
is most reassuring. And this is a psalm that is worthy to pause on and become more familiar with than we may be even now. Now, to be clear, to be clear, David, the psalmist, is in deep distress. His description of his distress is perhaps greater than most of the psalms that we've seen thus far. He describes himself as being a reproach to his neighbors. He sees himself as being treated like a leper, cast off and uh, dissed from society. He, in fact, is regarded as someone who is already dead and in the grave. Now, if truth be told, this may be a jaded perception due to the overwhelming sense of his discouragement. David, in Psalm 13, prays, Lord, give light to my eyes. Because one of the first things that goes when we are under deep distress is our perception. We lose, we very easily lose touch and lose track of of truth and we can easily fall in in despair into that dark night of the soul we can find ourselves not seeing things rightly and that's where the psalms step in and bring us back up and out of the miry pit and set our feet upon the solid rock yet this psalm is the material that we bring before the Lord and worship week after week. We don't leave these such, such things, such descriptions, such trials, we don't leave those behind and enter some kind of service where we are reminded that as Christians we must be happy all the day. That is a false theology. There's, there, Half the psalms are laments. They are cries before the Lord of hurting people. And God gives us permission, permission to cry before him and to give, ear, give, give voice and words. And this is part of life. And it's wonderful to know that we can come into the Lord, come into the presence of the Lord in a, time, a kind of worship, not to get jacked up, but to come once again before and see the sovereign king of kings seated on the throne and his son once again reaching out in forgiveness to us who have sinned and much of our pain may well be self-inflicted. We often come to worship with heavy hearts, with broken bodies, and sin-sick souls. And we don't live in denial of these things. Come we must. Come we are invited. Come to the waters. Come buy and eat. Come buy bread and wine without cost. We come because we are invited to come by Him who is seated on the throne. A footnote in the NIV Study Bible, the notes were by John Steck, said simply this about this psalm, no psalm 
expresses a more sturdy trust in the Lord when powerful human forces threaten. So the way to endure the trials of life, which is a big theme that repeats itself time and again in the Psalms, the way to endure the trials of life is to flee in trust and faith to our sovereign God who has redeemed us. We need to constantly return to that place of, of strength and solitude. And that's why we need the regularity of worship. The Lord, the Lord promises to care for his own. Even if he never promises that we will not endure hardship. He never promises that we will never endure hardship. We will face the valley of the shadow of death. But we do it with a a Savior who guides us through. It's a big theme in the Psalms. A theme that is very human. And so I divide the psalm in three parts, and I label them in this way. The outline is in your Bible if you want to take some notes. Not in your Bible, but in your bulletin on page 5. First eight verses I'm calling Christ our solid rock. The second part I'm calling Christ our secure repose our place of rest, Uh, verses 9 through 17. And the last part, Christ, our sure retreat, 19 to the end. Let's consider Christ our solid rock for a moment. Verse 1, the superscript says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. And you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. The psalmist here rests on a firm foundation. There is no other foundation that can be laid than that which is already laid, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, which is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself or it was said of Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 10, said of Jesus Christ himself. He is the rock. Christ was that rock out of which water flowed, out of that rock of strength, that rock of Gibraltar of which our lives are founded. And here in these first five verses, the psalmist confesses that the Lord is his rock, his refuge, his rock of refuge, his strong fortress, my rock, my fortress, my refuge. And then he says at the very end, you set my feet on a broad place. How is that a foundation? 
broad places where armies move. They are able to navigate movements so that they can position the pieces of their military for victory. I remember watching the Gettysburg movie uh, some years ago, and the generals were all uh, had gotten on, on uh, Cemetery Ridge. It was the high ground, even though it looked like flat land. And, and they kept on saying, you know, did you get good ground? Yes, it's good ground. Good ground. What made it good? It was a broad plain where they, they could maneuver their regiments and position their chess pieces, as, as it were, for victory. That's the picture we see here. This section continues, verse 7 and 8. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me, you, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, and you have set my feet in a broad place. This wonderful prayer of praise in the midst of his difficulty is a confession of where his faith lies even through the difficult times of life. The psalmist exudes a firm faith. He rests his soul into the hands of the living God. He rejects worthless idols of the world. He rejoices in the Lord's steadfast love. You may have noticed in our prayer of confession this morning several times the steadfast love of the Lord was mentioned we will return to that and in doing so he reveals that the the nature of true and saving faith as he acknowledges his hope in the living God that's how it begins his faith is not lost his life is turned upside down but his faith is still intact And he knows where to go in the midst of it all. Christ, our solid rock. Secondly, Christ, our secure repose. Repose, of course, is resting, inclining, resting in the hands of the Lord. Westminster Confession describes saving faith as resting in Christ alone where our repose lies. One of our uh, membership vows in in the PCA is do you acknowledge uh, Jesus to be the divine Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and do you now receive and rest upon Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel? Well, the psalmist here in the most difficult times of his life clearly is resting in a secure repose. Derek Kidner calls this this prayer, this section, one of two prayers of faith. Indeed, this psalm is, is the expression in the midst of the most difficult traumas of life. Listen to David's description of it in verses 8 through um, and following. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Now, hear the details of this. My eye 
is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. And my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me like a leper. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. There are a few descriptions of David that take him as low as this. Perhaps you too have found, been in a place, such a place, or even now are in such a place. The psalmist described a most disheartening season of trauma and despair in his life that involves mental, physical, spiritual collapse with scheming plots and social repercussions to it all. And being a man of power, a man of authority, he could not manage his way out of this. Yet the psalmist, if we continue, the psalmist offers one of the most faith-filled confessions that we find anywhere. Listen to these words that follow up from this. We don't have any evidence that David uh, has found uh, some remediation to all of this. He simply acknowledges where he is resting through it all. He is waiting for God to act in his time. Verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. That's the answer to the despair of life. Some people say, well, God's going to do that to me. Then I don't want anything to do with God, a God like that. And I say, well, then what are you left with? You still have your pain. You still have your trials. But you have nothing else. You've already realized that there's nothing in this world that can salvage your life that seems to be falling apart. But David knows that God is still on the throne. But I trust in you, O Lord, and I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. And perhaps that's the key that we need to get our head around. To be satisfied with the days, the years that the Lord may give us and know that anything that would cause those times to come to an end would only promote the child of God to heavenly glory. 
Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from the persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Second time that's mentioned there, isn't it? O Lord, let me not be put to shame. Call, for I call on you. Let not the wicked be, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol, to the grave. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Sounds very modern, doesn't it? Very contemporary. Psalmist offers this faith-filled confession in the midst of his darkest hour. Here is expressed utter and complete confidence in the Lord and his promises, such that he is securely at rest knowing his times, whether they are long or whether they are short. His times are in the hands of the Lord whose steadfast love endures forever. And then he calls upon the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. He calls for the Lord's face to shine upon him, his servant. He's thus able thusly to leave all matters in the hands of God, of God who loves him. This is what a confession of faith will do for us. Lamentations in the midst of Jerusalem's destruction, raising it virtually to the ground, nevertheless sings this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And Psalm 36 repeatedly says this response, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist in his darkest hour has Christ as his solid rock, Christ as his secure repose, and Christ as his sure retreat. He is God-focused. He prays profoundly in a profoundly personal way and in a, in, a, in a powerfully communal way as well. He prays, in other words, for and with the church. Notice with me. Verse 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those and, and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. This is the third time that's mentioned. When I was in a besieged city, I said to him in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy, and when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays 
the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is a wonderful expression of joy as he comes to the conclusion of this prayer in the midst of his darkest hour. Peter would later say when disciples were banding him hand over fist, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. And in our dark hours, our trials of life, friend, to whom shall we go? But Jesus, who has the words of eternal life. Therein is our help. There is a hymn in the Trinity hymnal that has become a favorite of mine. I've often used it during communion seasons, although it's under the rubric of prayer in the Trinity hymnal. The words by Hugh Stoll say, From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, a sure retreat. Tis found beneath the mercy seat. Ah, whither could we flee for aid when tempted, desolate, dismayed? Or how the hosts of hell defeat had suffering saints no mercy seat? Indeed, quite a question, isn't it? But we do. We do have a mercy seat. It's called the cross. It's called the table. It's called the, it's called the gospel. It's, it's where the blood is shed and forgiveness is given to the people of God. Such that David ends by praying with the people of God and admonishing them, love the Lord, all you saints. Is life hard for you? Love the Lord. Love him anyway. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. We have echoes uh, of the words spoken to Joshua. Be strong and courageous as what lies before you, uh, you are about to endure. We have echoes in the voice of Jesus who, who, said, who said, wait for the Lord, wait on him. In due course, the Lord will come to you in his steadfast love. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a few things to take home, and I need to pick up the pace on this. But we have in this psalm something that concerns the Lord's promise. There's a phrase here that says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. This psalm was on Jesus' mind as he was on the cross. And one of his final words, as he could barely breathe them out any longer, and before he expired, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. This means that this, the whole of this psalm was on his mind. The psalm describes the very passion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that we who are in Christ share in that passion as we share in his resurrection. For Jesus to have prayed part of the psalm means that the whole of it was on his mind and in his heart. 
And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame before he sat down at the right hand of God on high. There's also, this psalm concerns the Lord's love in the most profound way. Three times his steadfast love is mentioned. This is one of those repeated phrases in the Psalms. And it's a phrase that comes as close to John 3.16 as anything in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. The Lord's steadfast love, his covenant love where he embraces his people is as though he were saying to us here today, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He was saying that 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 was not a new thought. It goes back to the sustaining, steadfast love of the Lord. That is the gospel. And three times it is mentioned. It concerns the church's response to these things. And what's our response? Love the Lord anyway. Wait upon the Lord anyway. Trust the Lord anyway. Be strong and courageous anyway. Because the Lord will see you through. That's where the psalm takes us. It takes us from from those darkest hours and navigates our lives through the confidence that our times are in His hands. And not one moment before or one moment after the Lord's plan for us will we be taken home to be with him. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, pray for your blessing upon this word. These words seal it to our hearts and lives. Seal it, Lord, in your sacrament as we recall your blessing to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.